Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, when did the climate crisis begin? On October 31st, Scotland will host the 26th UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. Between now and then, we'll be covering the climate crisis on this podcast every week. At COP26, world leaders will try to agree on how to reduce emissions and prevent catastrophic temperature rises. But some climate activists are sceptical. They've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? The anger is understandable. We've known about the threats posed by climate change for decades. Political leaders have talked about tackling it for decades. Why have they failed to act? This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words. Words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Today, we're tracing the origins of the climate crisis, where it went wrong, and what can be learned from the failure to do anything until now, when it's almost too late. So there'd been people kind of theoretically talking about the link between carbon dioxide and global warming and then pulling in a sense that fossil fuels might be a problem for like basically the 1850s, you know? Alice Bell is co-director at the climate change charity Possible and author of Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. Alice, in the build-up to the COP26 conference, there's been an awful lot of focus on 2050. The middle of this century seems to be the key moment on the horizon, with the plan being to reach net zero emissions by that point. But if we look back to the middle of the last century, was there any awareness at that point of how the Earth's climate was being adversely affected by human activity? Yeah, I'd say the 1950s were a really key moment for scientists realising that this was a problem. The 1850s was kind of when we had the, the building blocks of climate science. And then about 50 years after that, so the turn of the century, people were like, oh, fossil fuels could cause a problem. But they hadn't really, people hadn't thought that this was a problem that was happening now. They kind of thought, oh, this might be something that happened in the future, or it's just happening a bit. But the 1950s were when there was enough scientists and enough money to be able to explore weird things like, are we warming the weather with with fossil fuels? And really good technological instruments, you know, and techniques, things like carbon dating and computers to run your clever maths on. People put it together and went, oh, uh, and there were some, there were several key scientific reports and papers. And crucially, there was a guy called Roger Ovell, who was a, an American scientist working out in California, who did some important oceanography research and was the person who first briefed Congress. So in 1956, that was the point where politicians in the States were first briefed that this was something that fossil fuels would emit carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide would cause global warming. And this wasn't just something that might happen in the future, but it was happening already. And did the alarm bells start ringing then or were people just largely unaware of it? No, not at all. I mean, global war- climate change just isn't something that kind of, it wasn't like, it's not like a fire alarm goes off and everyone goes, oh no, <laughs> it's not obvious. It sort of creeps up on you gradually. And I think there was quite a lot of time needed to treat it scientifically and to treat it emotionally, to kind of realise what was going on and to brief other people. So, I mean, one of the, this guy, Roger Ravel, when he first looked at his data, I think he was quite alarmed 
But he still thought, you know, there was a lot to play for then in the 1950s. The warming wasn't near as extreme as, as we're, we're currently living with. Dates like the year 2000 seemed so far off. They thought, oh, there's lots of time for us to, to tackle it. And he also, I mean, 1950s, you've got to remember there was a lot of hype about nuclear power. Calder Hall in Cumberland, opened by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth in October 1956, was the first full-scale atomic power station in the world. And not only are the bright, clean buildings a startling contrast to their grimy, coal-fired relatives, but... He thought fossil fuels were, were on the way out anyway, and so it, it might just be this weird moment in human history where we warmed the earth a bit. And for him, it was very much a scientific thing. He just wanted to study it while it was happening. And then gradually, as, as more scientists got involved, as more disciplines could look at things like the ecological impacts of it, the alarm started to grow. And in the 60s, of course, that's when the general public, and I mean the general public in the loosest term, because it wasn't exactly a consensus, but that's when the general public started to become concerned about global warming. How did that concern manifest itself? I mean, maybe it would be sort of fairer to say that by the 60s, a lot of people in different countries kind of knew about this issue. It had been on mainstream television in many countries. Frank, Frank Capra, who directed It's a Wonderful Life, that's what he's most famous for, um, he got fed up with Hollywood in the late 50s and gone off to make TV shows. And he made this incredible TV show, which is still on the internet. You can Google it. It's called The Unchanged Goddess or something like that. And it's a, it's a TV show for children and it's all about weather science and it includes this section at the end that's sort of saying through burning fossil fuels we're warming the earth even now man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide which helps air absorb heat from the sun our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. And this was, this was on mainstream TV. In the UK, the BBC had Prince Philip fronting a TV show about environmental science in the late 50s, which also mentioned global warming. I, but I'd say that it probably was just kept in the background. So I think people knew about it. People would you know, make reference to, oh, uh, the sea's rising or something. And that would continue well into the 80s. But then you wouldn't see a spark of kind of public kind of concern happening until the 80s. Although in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, there was a huge increase in people being concerned about environmental issues. I mean, maybe that was also one of the reasons they weren't they weren't talking explicitly about climate change too much because it was competing for people's concerns. They were already worrying about pesticides, about water pollution, about air pollution. And so they weren't necessarily looking at this much more abstract problem of carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere. And is that when we first saw activism emerging as a, as a significant movement? The environmental movement as a whole has very long histories going all the way back to, not centuries, but in the 1960s, you see a, a real push in it and a real wave. And you see people being more kind of activists. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day. Previously, environmental campaigning had been maybe a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more about talking to politicians. It was a sort of thing that politicians and their friends did, rich people did, Prince Philip did. Um, but by the 60s, it would start to shift a bit and you'd see people who'd come into people who'd sort of been politicised by the anti-nuclear movement move into environmental concerns and use also very influenced by civil rights movement, uh, ideas of non-violent direct action, and this sort of version of what we now think of as the environmental activist kind of emerged. And then in 1974, there was a report produced by the CIA 
And the CIA's primary concern in that study was the potential for social and political unrest as a result of global warming. And that report painted a really bleak picture. What exactly did it say? It's a really interesting report to sort of go back into, you know, back to 1974 and see what political analysts thought of it. And their worry is that if the climate is changing, this is going to mess up the food system and this could cause war. And they don't really mind if the climate is warming or cooling. They kind of that's it seems to be something they kind of leave for the nerds to worry about. Uh, but they're worried that, that changes in the climate could have big impacts. And one of the other things that they talk about is they sort of, they think that that climate change is going to get bad. They can tell it's going to get bad and they think that. And that uh, nation states will, will want to do something about it. And this, I think, is the thing that they get wrong. Or maybe the thing that they predicted hasn't happened yet. Because they're like, well, it's going to get so bad, we're going to fight against it. And we're going to build weapons against the weather. And the problem with weather weapons is that they're quite slippery. Because you could make a cloud to make it rain over one country. And then the wind could blow that cloud over to another country. And it could cause a flood. And understandably, that second country could get quite annoyed with the first country. So they were worried about kind of geopolitical consequences of weather weapons. Now, this isn't the sort of thing that has happened. What they totally failed to predict, and you'd kind of hope that the political analysts at the CIA might have been canny enough to think, is the oil industry pushing back and saying, there is no way we're going to let you take action on climate change uh, and cut, curtail the, the selling of our product. We don't know like how big a deal it was at the CIA, you know, was it just somebody doing it as a side project? It could be that if more resources at the CIA had been poured into this issue, they would have had a little bit better scientific advice, a little bit more political thought had gone into it. Um, but they weren't the only people saying things like this at the time. Anthropologist Margaret Mead pulled together a load of people in the mid 70s wanting, she argued that we really needed some more political and social analysis of the climate problem and that it shouldn't be something that's just left for scientists to think about. And some of their analysis is not that dissimilar, actually, from the CIA one. And then there was James Hansen. He was a climate modeler and he made an appearance at a Senate committee in the US in 1988. And in a watershed moment, he said that climate change, and this is a quote, is already happening. That made a big splash at the time. Had global warming become a, a mainstream issue by that point? I think by the time you get to the late 80s, people had been really used to this issue of of climate change being talked about in the background for a long time you know people had grown up watching that Frank Capra TV show one of the things that's no really noteworthy about those this Frank Capra TV show from 1958 that mentions climate change is that uh, apparently it wasn't a big deal when it was first shown but then it got shown in American uh, schools so apparently those generations of American kids had just watched it in schools and it had uh, Capra himself predicted this huge audience for it over time and so there would have been people who would have watched that uh, and it would have been there in the back of their mind it would have been something that people kind of talked about maybe joked about oh yeah in the future maybe all the ice caps will melt poor old polar bears uh, something that environmentalists might mention when they were also mentioning other things um, and it had been creeping along and I think the time was right for something to spark uh, for people to for it to make its way into the mainstream. So, you know, big moments like this, when an issue splashes in the news, it's not just because somebody said something fantastic that means it splashes. It's normally the context around it that allows that splash to happen. And another really important context in this 1988 speech was it was a really, really hot summer in the States. It wasn't even noon today when the temperature at Sioux Falls in South Dakota was over 100. In Georgia, a woman died from heat stroke while she was working in a tobacco field. It is in the Midwest and the South where the drought and the heat still hold people and animals and the land in their grip. Where some people have become so distraught they have told their congressman, God is against us. And there have been other hot summers before. And one of the things I really noticed uh, researching the book was 
at points where there would be a really hot summer, people would go, oh, it's, it's weirdly hot. Is it this climate change thing? And you can actually read press going all the way back to 1912, where people are saying that. There's, you know, it's, it's really, really hot. And journalists are like wanting to have a story about it going, what is it? Is it this climate change thing? And initially people are like, no, no, no. And then they're like, oh, maybe. And by 1988, enough people were like, oh, yeah, it's that climate change thing. And so it was easier for Hansen to say, this is it. You know, you're sitting there sweating. Your tarmac is melting. You can see weird things going on with crops and birds. And, and you know, this is this global warming thing your teacher told you, told you about. And people are like, aha, behind the scenes, there'd been a lot more political movement. People had set, were setting up an international panel on climate change, scientific advisors. There was a lot of movement towards having a global treaty. I think it wasn't just James Hansen and the world's press that were ready for action on climate change. There were a lot of other places in the world that were kind of getting ready for that moment. Coming up, how the fossil fuel companies fought back and will the latest green surge lead to real political action on climate change? There was one cohort that was pretty much saying, no, no, guys, nothing to see here. And that was the fossil fuel companies, because by the 90s, they'd begun to fight back with tactics like promoting climate scepticism. Did that really work? And did they have any other tactics in their arsenal that they were using to try and dull the truth? Initially, the oil industry had been playing a role in climate science. I mean, right back to the 1950s, you can see them researching it and being interested in it. It's important for them to understand uh, changes to the weather in case, you know, global warming might open up new opportunities as the ice melts, they'll find coal, but also can be really damaging and dangerous for offshore oil rigs. You know, we just saw that actually with hur- with hurricanes just this summer, and uh, oil workers having to be airlifted out. And so they were, they were aware, also they knew, you know, if we were going to take action on fossil fuels, then it was going to hit their bottom line. So they were studying it. And there was quite a lot of investment in climate science from uh, oil companies right up into the 80s. But I think by this moment where, you know, James Hansen is, is talking in DC and it's making the front page of the New York Times. And you've also got, not long after that, you've got people like Margaret Thatcher giving speeches at the UN calling for a global treaty. Mr. President, the environmental challenge which confronts the whole world demands an equivalent response from the whole world. Every country will be affected and no one can opt out. George H. Bush, the first President Bush, uh, campaigning in the election around that time, saying things like, oh, you've heard about the greenhouse effect. Well, let me tell you about the White House effect. And I'm here today to talk about building a, a better America and to make a case that I feel very strongly about. And that's the case for a cleaner environment. And you can see the oil industry thinking, oh, after decades of people kind of, you know, just thinking, oh, we should do something about this, but not doing much. Now they're going to do something. We need to act. And there were a variety of different tactics they took. And one was investing in just this idea of doubt that maybe it wasn't really happening at all. And this was something they took out of the tobacco playbook. So the tobacco industry in the 1950s had seen this lots of people talking about the connection between smoking and cancer and gone, ah, this is going to destroy our market. So what can we do to delay that market destruction as much as possible? And one of the tactics they used was by 
just getting lots of scientists to do work that wasn't necessarily wrong. I mean, sometimes it would be wrong, but most of the time it, it was just asking questions that were just a bit of a distraction. So you'd have people say, oh, what about asbestos? Does that cause cancer? Which case the answer is yes, it does. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about smoking. Uh, but it could be used strategically to derail conversations and stop people wondering. Also, it's, it's totally natural in science to doubt stuff and to ask questions. So you use this, what is meant to be a very positive force in science against itself. And it was quite effective. They very much targeted who they were talking to, particular audiences, mainly in the States. But it worked. I think it really did cause a lot of delay for, for a long time. But it wasn't the only tactic they used. I mean, by the turn of uh, the millennium, sort of the early 2000s, you see groups like BP rebranding as Beyond Petroleum. Beyond darkness, light. Beyond petroleum, BP. And they had all this advert saying that they were really into renewables. And I mean, that's an example of one of the other tactics they took, greenwash. Most of the oil companies are also doing other forms of, of energy. Some of them are doing loads. Like some oil companies are very serious about moving to wind, but not all of them. Some of them just have a very small amount of renewable energy. But that's what their adverts are. I mean, if you look at the adverts for most major oil companies, you'd think that the only thing they did was invest in renewable energy. The other thing that um, BP in particular is famous for is putting the emphasis on people as individuals. And this tactic, they took this out of the tactics from the packaging industry in the 60s. As people use more and more disposable, so plastics became a thing or disposable paper, and they throw stuff away. So they invented the idea of littering and litter bugs and made the responsibility about, and yes, of course you shouldn't litter. And of course you should pick up litter if you see it. And people who do beach cleanups are wonderful, but we shouldn't be producing that stuff in the first place. The oil industry could see how incredibly powerful and effective that had been because people are like, yes, I can't litter and I must, I must pick up my litter and I must tell other people off. And they were like, they could do this for climate change. So they promoted the idea of the carbon footprint and made people go, oh, it's all about me. And what that does is it encourages everyone to do a little, which means that no one does very much. And no one points their finger at the oil companies, they point at each other. And again, that's been a tactic that I think was very effective for a while and people are starting to call out more and more. Now, in the middle of the last decade, the issue of climate change seemed to go right to the top of the agenda, similar to what we're seeing happening today. We had the Copenhagen conference. Climate change is one of the greatest challenges facing our generation. The world must come together in Copenhagen and deliver a viable solution. Now, that seemed to be a landmark moment for action. But then it, nothing really happened. What went wrong there? Some people forget this now, but I mean, I remember it really vividly. It was sort of every time you turn on the television, there'd be somebody talking about climate change and people were going on at each other about how much they were doing for climate change and they were going to give up flying and cut down on meat and all these things. And the Copenhagen talks were just built up as the thing that was going to save us. And there'd been a change in the American politics. Obama had been had voted in. And you remember all those hope posters? It was all about hope. Everything was going to be great in the future. But it also had been, you know, the climate politics at the UN level which is what these Copenhagen, what Copenhagen talks were, had been dominated by a sense that the, the richer countries had to lead and the less developed countries didn't have so much responsibility. But things had changed a bit. And China, by this point, not, it wasn't 1970 anymore. And, 90, and China has huge carbon emissions. And the American politicians back home that were sending Obama over there were saying, well, you know, if you want us to make cuts, then we want to see China make cuts too. So you get this kind of argument between China. It, get, it gets very much focused in what China and America do. And Obama flew into Copenhagen. We come here in Copenhagen because climate change poses a grave and growing danger to our people. All of you would not be here unless you, like me, were convinced 
that this danger is real. He bypassed all of the usual processes and kind of gatecrashed a conversation between China, Brazil and a few other of these sort of large emerging economic nations. He ended up brokering a loose accord with uh, the leader in China and uh, kind of where they, they agreed that they would, you know, they understood climate change and they believed in it and they would aspire to keep to two degrees global warming, but not really doing anything uh, concrete. But they'd also bypassed all of the UN process, which really angered people and people just felt like it was falling apart. We might get a photo opportunity for so-called political leaders, but it won't be what we need in order to avoid catastrophic climate change. What we have got happening here is terrible bullying going on from the developed world of the developing world. Greenpeace said the, the streets of Copenhagen are a crime scene, which is typical kind of Greenpeace speak, but I think was kind of accurate. And the other thing that happened right after that was the economic downturn. And all these people who've been terrified about climate change, but had very important other immediate concerns. I mean, particularly in Ireland, you know, people would have really noticed that. Like, you can care about climate change, but then you've, you've also got all this other stuff you have to deal with. You have to worry about feeding your family. And I think the wind kind of came out of the climate movement sails a bit. Uh, I mean, we built it back up. Uh, in the decades after, uh, but certainly in sort of the years after Copenhagen, everything was just a little bit flat. And now looking back over the last 60 years or so, it's hard not to be enraged that there wasn't more urgency injected into the debate at certain moments. It feels like if we'd done more decades ago, then we wouldn't be in this mess today. What were some of the crossroad moments that you came across in your studies? I think the biggest one was the push by the oil industry back against climate action and that's the one that makes me so angry um because that's sort of that's deliberate you know and i mean we will i think undoubtedly see more and more uh litigation on this sort of issue in, in decades to come and that's the one that people will look back with with a lot of anger on um but i mean one of the things that really struck me when i was researching the book was that the oil industry weren't necessarily the most trustworthy of people even before the climate crisis became an issue. And so maybe if we had built the oil industry in a different way, if different people had been in power in the oil industry, uh, it was reformed in the US quite extremely at the beginning of the 20th century. It was seen as a big monopoly by one big company and it was broken up into lots of small companies. Um, so Exxon and Mobil and Chevron all have a kind of shared grandparent of Standard Oil. But maybe if it had been broken up in a different way or been regulated more, maybe they would have taken um, to this challenge of climate change in a different way. And I think that's something that we really need to be conscious of uh, today because we're faced with this challenge of dramatically changing our energy system very quickly. And when you do things quickly, you can often do them really badly. And I think it's vital that we think about building a really good energy system that is fair, that is accountable, that has good people in charge, because it's too important, not just for the climate, but just to keep people warm, to keep their lives lit, to allow them to move around, um, to keep hospitals running. You know, it's too important to be left to bad people. On a more hopeful note, there were also a lot of points where we might not have been as well prepared as we are. Like there's a load of chance things that came into us, even discovering climate change is happening in the first place. Like it's not obvious. We could still be sitting around going, weather's a bit weird again. And although it maybe seems like I'm looking for hope and optimism and happiness where there isn't any, but I do feel that when I wrote the book, I really felt by the time I finished writing it, I sort of looked back on it and went, actually, could have been a lot worse, <laughs> uh, which may not seem very nice for a lot of people, especially if you're dealing with a flood or a heat wave. But I, I do think it's true. In the last 30 years, we've seen 
waves of support for urgent action on climate change. And then sometimes they just seem to subside and disappear. Are you hopeful or optimistic that the wave that we're currently experiencing will persist? If you'd asked me that question two years ago, I would have gone, oh, oh, every time you look at history, you get a wave of climate and interest in climate change and then it falls back. We're running a wave now. We've got the climate strikers. We've got Extinction Rebellion. We've got people on the telly talking about it, but it's just going to fall away again. Uh, it's going to fall away like it did for Copenhagen. And I, I and a lot of other climate people are really worried, you know, when is it going to fall away? How long can we keep it going? Can we keep it going to the Glasgow talks? Can we keep it going to Christmas? Keep it going to Italy? And then... COVID happened and I thought, right, that's it, that's it, it's over. The economic problems in the late noughties really kind of took the wind out of the sails of the climate movement and I thought COVID's going to do that again. Because understandably, people are worried about COVID and all the economic problems that that's going to bring as well. And it didn't. You know, it's one of the things that's been really remarkable over the last 18 months is that in many countries around the world, concern about climate change hasn't just maintained, but in fact it's increased. And I find that heartening. You know, it's not going away. And maybe I'm just going through a brief save of optimism, but I really feel like it's not going away. People want to see climate action and they're screaming for it and they're going to continue to. And at these talks in Glasgow, I think politicians from all over the world are going to go there knowing that that's what their citizens want. Now, it's very late in the day and there's a limit to how much we can do. And if we want to have a snowball's chance in in two degrees warming, um, of, of keeping our lives in any way kind of livable, we're going to have to drastically change how we live our lives, particularly in, in rich countries like in Europe. But we can do it. Humans have done some really incredible, ridiculous things. Like some of them have been very, very damaging, but we are capable of power and we should remember that. And it's it's that slightly cheesy superhero thing with, with great power brings great responsibility. So we just need to, to use that power wisely. That's all for today. You can find articles and other work by Irish Times journalists on the climate crisis in the lead up to COP26 on irishtimes.com.